Jimmy to turn. Yeah? Okay. It's the end of the world. I don't know of a better way to pitch a blockbuster movie. Something is going wrong. Migratory patterns of birds, sharks are getting smarter, there's more left-handed people. Something is going wrong. And one brave hero or heroine notices, but nobody listens. And then we find out that that small sign was in fact the sign of the end of the world. Makes for great movies. But in real life, the people like that, the people that movies make out to be the brave heroes, are usually the punchlines of jokes, aren't they? It's the, the stereotype, the, the man standing on the street corner with a billboard saying the end is near. When I was in Bible college, in one year, there was a man who uh, claimed to be a Christian pastor who warned people twice in the same year that the end of the world was coming. He gave one date, it passed, the world didn't end, as you can tell, and then he said, my bad, it's actually supposed to be a couple months from now, which is a very brave thing to do when you get that first one wrong. <laughs> and the world still did not end. Apparently another preacher this year did the same thing, told people that earlier this year was the end of the world. And it seems like Christians who talk about the end of the world are just that, the punchlines of jokes, people who are not to be taken seriously. This whole idea is for people who are hot and bothered for no good reason. Well, the prophet Joel would beg to differ. There's one overarching topic and theme of the book of Joel, and that is the day of the Lord is coming. The day that will be the last day of this world is coming. His goal is to teach, about, teach us about this, the day of the Lord's reckoning with this world. And he's trying to warn us so that we can live with the right perspective, to know what's coming. From the midst of what he was in, a national tragedy, Joel wanted to speak to the people around him to say, there's something that's more worth your attention that's coming. So let me invite you to turn, if you will, to the book of Joel in your Bible. Joel is an Old Testament prophet. I'd encourage you to look in your contents page. He's hard to find because he's not that big. But if you find the book of Daniel, which is longer, and just keep going, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, too far, go back. We don't know much about Joel. Uh, he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible as it his, in sort of the history of his life. And he doesn't give us that much information about himself. Other prophets like to say that they were prophesying under the reign of this king and this king. But Joel doesn't give us that information. He just says his name and his father's name. His name, Joel, uh, is a common name, though. It shows up in Chronicles quite often in the midst of the genealogies. Uh, so we know that, and we know that he was a prophet in Israel at some point in the Old Testament. His name, Joel, means Yahweh is God. And that's about all we know about the man. But what we do know is that though we might have a really hard time 
finding his book in our Bibles, the New Testament authors had no difficulty finding him. The first scripture quoted in the first Christian sermon in Acts 2 is Joel. And as you already saw a little bit of in what, in what uh, was read to us, Joel is referenced and quoted several times in Revelation. So the beginning of the church, the end of the world, the New Testament writers see fit to quote this prophet. And Joel himself uses phrases and lines that echo throughout the rest of the Old Testament, what other writers and prophets used. So we might not know much about his biographical life, but we know that he was a man who was saturated in Scripture. And the, the biblical perspective shaped not just how he talked about spiritual things, but how he saw the significance of his day-to-day life. So with that, let's look at what's going on around him and how he interprets it in Joel. We'll be starting at the beginning of Joel and we'll go to chapter 2, verse 17 today. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and let their children to another generation. What the cutting locust had left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them, Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you. 
because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through all the years of all generations. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap up on the top of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the minister of the Lord, ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The main idea of this part of Joel is this. The day of the Lord is coming. So call on God. The first part of that, the day of the Lord is coming, you can see in two places that run parallel to each other. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, and chapter 2, 1 through 11. So hopefully in your Bible, they're, they're on opposite pages of one another. We can look back and forth. That will be helpful to you to be able to, to look as we, as we go through. The day of the Lord is coming. Joel begins by describing a terrible event that has happened in Israel. When the psalmist, or when Moses tell the people to remember something and to tell the next generation, usually they're talking about an act of deliverance, the bringing out of, from Egypt, the exodus, or something similar to that. And they say, remember this and tell your children so that they remember it. But Joel is not speaking about a happy event. 
He's speaking about a tragedy, the likes of which has not happened before. Locusts have come into the land. You see that wave after wave after wave of locusts. You can see that in verse 4. First one, what they leave, another eats, and another eats, and another eats, devastating the land. Locusts, in case you don't know, are grasshoppers. They're large grasshoppers, but we start calling them locusts when they're in a large enough number to cause damage to crops around them. Uh, They're usually not your friendly uh, garden grasshopper. They're usually a lot more hungry and a lot more aggressive in eating. These locusts, it says they destroyed vines, they destroyed fig trees, pomegranates, apple, uh, apple, palm dates, all of it's gone. Trees are stripped bare. They're made white because even their bark has been eaten. These locusts are described as having lion's teeth, not because they literally had lion's teeth, but because they're insatiable. They keep eating, and nothing can stop them from eating. It's hard to imagine the horror of a locust infestation if you've never been through one. There's a sense of helplessness. It just keeps coming and there's nothing you can do. It's massive and unstoppable. It's devastating everything. And all you can do is stand and watch. Locust infestations also often happen when extreme weather has happened, when it's been really cold or really dry. In a, in a place. So often they come after there's already been a drought. So already farming is difficult, and then locusts will come. We live in a city uh, and the desert. So it's particularly hard for us to, to imagine how deeply this would impact a society. But if you're in a community where you're growing the food that you're going to eat, rather than having it shipped in from other places like we do, when locusts come and remove the food, imagine what that does. You have to wait till next year for more food. Laura Ingalls Wilder, who grew up in the American Prairie in the 1800s, wrote books called Little House on the Prairie, wrote about when a locust infestation struck the middle of America in the 1870s. Other accounts say that this cloud of locusts was over 2,000 miles long and 100 miles wide. Laura remembers the horrid feeling of huge insects clinging to her clothes, writhing and squishing beneath her bare feet, and the sound, she says, of millions of jaws biting and chewing as locusts destroyed her family's wheat. Farmers tried lighting fires, sticking molasses to large nets and waving them through the air. Some got so angry and frustrated they fired their shotguns in the air, but of course it was all futile. Most farmers at that point threw in their tools, got on their wagon, and went back east. What were they going to do? In 2013, there was a locust infestation in Madagascar that wiped out the rice crops there. In the first week, over a third of the island's rice was destroyed. It took over 120 million dirhams to provide food relief for the country as well as eradicate the locusts. And even with modern technologies, It took over three years to finally get rid of them all. Just two years ago, in Dagestan, Russia, traffic came to a standstill because of a locust uh, swarm that came that made it so dark that drivers couldn't see safely enough to drive down the road. There are few things in nature 
that will not directly attack a human being that are so terrifying. And while it's terrifying in the moment when they're coming, when they blot out the clouds, the sky, and make it dark, when they consume the food, the after effects is far worse. Food is devastated. Later in the chapter, Joel talks about the storehouses being desolate. There's no food left. Everything's been emptied out. Even cows and sheep wander around perplexed because they can't find food on the ground like they're supposed to. And as you might imagine, a common after-effect, after-shock of a locust plague is more drought because plants are taken away. There's no nutrients that go back into the soil. The soil turns to dust. And even if there is rain, it just runs out. It doesn't stay in the ground. After a couple seasons of this, which is often what happens, you can't even grow anything anymore. Joel says that the very thing, this very thing has happened because of this locust plague. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, the wine has dried up. And in verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, the brooks and the springs have dried up. He addresses drunkards in verse 5, but it doesn't seem like he's rebuking them from getting drunk. He's making the point that things are so bad that even the enjoyment is, of wine is taken away. There's no food, there's no water, there's no celebration. Unlike today, where other countries can send food, where we have things like the Red Cross, Red Crescent, that can send relief, they didn't have those in those days. And if locusts hit your country, odds were they probably hit the country next to you as well. So all that's left is the slow work of sowing more seed and hoping something grows, and hoping you can make it to the next crop. No wonder verse 12 says that gladness also was gone. What do you have to celebrate when you have nothing anymore? Verse 8 says, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. This is a picture of a woman who is a widow on the day of her wedding. One scholar says, this, is the death of a young, this seems to be the death of a young man between the time when his family would have paid the bride price and is actually taking his bride to his house. This is not a command that the people were supposed to obey. This is what is inevitable. This is the kind of mourning that happens when a bride loses her groom on the day of their wedding. You don't have to tell her to grieve. She will be grieving. But verses 9 and 10 show us what Joel thinks is actually the biggest tragedy of all this. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. Because of the locusts and because of the drought, there's no food, but there's also no way to worship the Lord anymore. The grain and drink offerings were the most regular offerings that were supposed to happen in the temple every morning, every evening. When there's no grain, when there's no wine, how are you supposed to do that? Christian, I wonder, is this how you evaluate tragedy? Would you say that the worst thing that could happen to you physically is something that would keep you from worshiping? 
Praise the Lord, we no longer have to physically go to a particular place to worship the Lord. We worship in spirit and truth, not on this mountain or that mountain. But are hindrances to worship to you tragic? Or is it maybe a little bit of a relief when you have a reason to not go to church today? When you're prevented from spending time in the word because of the busyness of your schedule, does it bother you? Or are you kind of glad to get on with the productive things in your day? When you fall asleep in the middle of praying, does it pain you? I don't mean at all that you should feel guilty about those kinds of things, especially not falling asleep from being tired. But do you miss prayer more than you miss sleep? Remember what Jesus said when his disciples came back to him with food? He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. The point is not to say that food or sleep are not important. They certainly are. We all know what happens if you don't eat or drink or sleep. You will die. But they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is worshiping God. Worshiping God is even more important than eating. But then turn to chapter 2. This immediate event that Joel is looking at and describing, this locust and drought, he sees as pointing to something more significant. Blow a horn in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountains. Something else is coming. This invasion of locusts was bad, but another invasion is coming. And he uses the same Im- the images of the locust invasion that would still be haunting his listeners. Remember that line from Laura Ingalls saying how she could remember feeling them inside her clothes and underneath her feet. The, the penetration of locusts everywhere is something that I don't think you'd quickly forget. So Joel picks up this picture to warn them about what's coming in the future. So he describes darkness spreading like a cloud coming over the mountains, like the locusts blotting out light. He describes this army as appearing like horses, which is often how grasshoppers are described. There's actually an interesting Arab legend that grasshoppers are what happened when the devil tried to improve on God's horse. just drawing off of that they look kind of similar, the shape of their heads. This army runs each in his own way, not swerving or jostling. In Proverbs 30, 27, uh, King Agur notices this about locusts, that their invasion is orderly, even though they have no king. They always stay in their ranks. This army can't be stopped by weapons, just like locusts. Firing a shotgun is not going to stop them. Walls don't stop them. They enter in through the window effortlessly. But this invasion, this army, is not just another swarm of locusts, clearly. There's something much more sinister and frightening to it. This is a different army. It is the army coming on the day of the Lord. You see that in verse 1. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It's not just darkness from the shadows of a locust cloud. The sky is dark and gloomy gloomy, like it was at Mount Sinai when the Lord appeared to his people. Locusts destroyed the crops. But in front of this army, 
nothing escapes. Before this army, all peoples are in anguish. Or the way we might put that is everyone has knots in their stomach. The anxiety about what is coming physically hurts them. They go white with fear as blood leaves their faces, seeing what's coming. Before this army, the earth and the heavens shake and tremble with fear. The stars are so frightened that they withdraw their shining. It's as though the stars are hoping if we stop shining, maybe this army won't notice us. This army that is so terrible, so frightening, who is at the head of this army? We see the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is very great. This is no locust or human invasion that Joel's warning about. This invasion is led by the Lord himself. Look again at how the army is described. Even as Joel paints a picture of it, it's as though he knows that his words can't quite capture what it looks like. He says their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like war horses. They sound as if with the rumbling of chariots or like devouring a flame. They're like a powerful army. They're like soldiers attacking in this way. They're like a thief. This is really common when the prophet sees something that is heavenly. They, they guard their language a little bit. They realize what they, their words can't quite capture what they're seeing. So if you want to see this really clearly, look in Daniel 7, when Daniel sees the coming of one like a son of man. Or Ezekiel 1, where Ezekiel sees the triumphant throne chariot of the Lord appearing on the banks of the Babylon. And he says, they look like wheels turning within wheels. What they see is so awesome and so amazing, even as they describe it, they're aware that they can't quite capture it in words because it's otherworldly. Joel is describing heavenly hosts ready for battle following behind the Lord God, preparing for the day of the Lord. So what is this day of the Lord? Clearly, it's a serious day, great and awesome. The prophets use this phrase over and over again to describe final judgment from the Lord. In the prophets, there's lots of little days of the Lord, smaller moments of God's judgment, the invasion of other nations, Israel being taken into exile, the destruction of the temple. But all of these are nothing compared to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the last day, the Lord's final reckoning of this world. It's the return of the king, but it's not a happy return because everyone must give an account for what they have done. Isaiah uses similar language to Joel 2, 10, when he says, behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel and wrath with wrath and fierce anger to make a land desolate and to destroy its sinners from it. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light and the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the world for its iniquity. The day of the Lord is when the Lord will punish the world for our sin. But 
strangely, astonishingly, the apostles told us that the day of the Lord has already happened. When Peter stands up and quotes Joel at the day of Pentecost, that we'll look at that passage more next week, that's what he, he quotes directly, but he says, he explains that the day of the Lord has happened. That's what's going on that people are wondering about. There was a day already that happened. The land was covered in darkness in the middle of the day. The earth shook. Even the temple of the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The day when Jesus hung on the cross had all the signs of the end of the world. And the apostles are saying, day of the Lord. And then the sun came back. The world continued on. This, all the signs that final destruction was coming were there. And yet, 2,000 years later, we are here. So how could that have been the day of the Lord? How are the apostles not like that preacher that I mentioned who said the end of the world happened a couple years ago and then he was wrong? Well, they said it, the apostles were saying it after the fact of the matter, looking back and recognizing this was the day of the Lord. This was the beginning of the end of the world. Why? Because on that day, Jesus received the final judgment and destruction of the Lord. On that day, Jesus, not the rest of humanity, took the brunt of the Lord's destroying army. He received God's wrath, even though he didn't deserve it. Have you ever seen one of those pictures of a lighthouse on the coast? And the lighthouse is being hit by a massive wave. And you can see at the bottom of the lighthouse, someone's opening a door. There's this huge wave behind them crashing down. But they're able to open a door and remain safe. Why? Because the, way, the tower has taken the brunt of the wave for them. The wave is coming. It's still coming. It's not as though suddenly the wave was removed but something stood in between that person and the wave. That's like what's going on in the, with talking about the cross being the day of the Lord. The wave of God's judgment is beginning to break. It hasn't hit the coast of the rest of humanity quite yet, but we saw the beginning of it. It hit the tower of the cross. Jesus receiving that brunt on the behalf of all those who trust in him so that they are safe. Jesus stands in front of those who trust in him and takes the brunt of that blow for us. That's what was happening on the cross. He was receiving our judgment, our final destruction. So if you trust in Christ, you know that you will be safe on the end of, at the end of the world because it's already happened for you. The day of the Lord is coming. And in a sense, it's already started to happen because the full weight of God's wrath has already been poured out once, and it will be fully and finally poured out on all the world at the end of time. And just because the rest of the wave hasn't broken yet, doesn't mean that it's not still coming. The end of the world hasn't come, hasn't come yet, not because the Lord is slow to keep his promises, because he is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all might be saved. So friend, if you 
haven't trusted in Christ, don't presume. Don't presume that there's still time. Don't presume that the danger of the wave has passed. The fact that the wave hasn't crashed yet should not make you relieved when you've already seen it start to hit. The rest is coming. So why on earth would you not take safety now, quickly? The Apostle John uses these pictures of locusts and an invading heavenly army to describe the end of the world again in Revelation. You heard that when Jules read it to us, these demonic locusts attacking in Revelation 9. John takes this picture of locusts, the locust invasion that Joel talked about, and the army that Joel said the locust invasion was pointing towards, and John smushes them together to paint this vivid picture of what the end of the world is going to look like. So does that mean that angels or demons look like grasshoppers with sharp teeth and long hair? Maybe. Uh, The cherubim look pretty weird when you see how they're described in Ezekiel and Revelation. They're, They're strange, they're not like us. But I don't think that's the case. I think that Joel and then John are describing these events with images that look like the locust plagues-ish to link together how you should feel about the coming day of the Lord. You should feel the way that you felt about the locust plague. But it should be bigger. Let me be clear, I'm not saying uh, I'm, let me clear, I am saying that Joel is literally talking about a literal, real, heavenly army. But obviously, though God will lead, such this, lead this army, God will not physically stand at the front of the army because God has no body. In the same way, I don't think it's necessary that the physical description of this army is describing what they physically look like but it's describing what they will do and how we will feel when they come. In describing these events, again, words cannot capture what it will look like. Words can only paint a picture of like what it will be like. It's not different as in totally unrelated or less than. It's different because it's greater than the prophets could have written or imagined. The end of the world will not be a whimper. It will be clear and final. Have you ever heard someone say that something happened and it left them speechless, but you know that it didn't really leave them speechless because they keep talking to you about it? (laughs) The day of the Lord will leave us speechless, literally. We will have no words when we see God's judgment poured out and seeing his judgment as it really is. Isn't it interesting also that in the middle of this tragedy that Joel is experiencing, he sees it as an opportunity to point to something far worse, the judgment of the Lord. At first glance, that can feel a little crude. Like if there was a massive pileup on Sheikh Zayed and people had died and your coworkers or your family are talking about it 
and you say, you know, the day of the Lord will be like that car crash, but much worse. I may not know your coworkers or your family, but I'm pretty confident I know how that conversation would end very quickly and very awkwardly. Yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. In Luke 13, when people came to him and asked him about the Galileans who'd been murdered randomly by the governor, when 18 people had been killed by a tower that had fallen down, Jesus doesn't explain the reason or God's purpose behind what happened. He says, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Tragedy and pain now is tragic. It is right to lament and grieve when bad things happen to us, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, but they are also a strange mercy of the Lord. They're a small foretaste of what's coming, and in that sense, they're a warning to prepare. Something far worse is coming, so prepare now. The discomfort of tragedy and pain right now are tremors. They're shockwaves that are coming from what's, what's about to happen. And they're also warnings to get ready. Take refuge, because something far worse is coming. So these, what's happening is foreshadows, not for the fun of it, not because God likes to poke at us, like farm boys like to poke at cows on the way to the slaughterhouse. No, they're warnings to help us turn and repent. Remember what's coming and act accordingly. And that's exactly Joel's application from this. And that's our second point. Secondly, call on God before the day of the Lord comes. You can see that in what's left of chapter 1, verses 13 through 20, and then chapter 2, 12 to 17. Joel's instruction to the people about how to respond to both of these tragedies is actually pretty much the same. Look at verse 1, verse 13, and 2, verse 15. He says, Wail, lament, put on sackcloth, consecrate a fast, assemble the people, all of them, leaders and the nation, old people, babies, brides and grooms preparing for their wedding day. Come right now. This is more important. Call on the Lord. Cry out to him. One thing that is interesting that you may have noticed if you, if you read this and talked about this earlier this week with people is that even though Joel is very clear that they should lament, even though he's very clear that they should return to the Lord, he doesn't actually tell them what sin it is that God is judging. And I think that's part of the point. Both, of the, both the locust plague and the last day are indiscriminate. Everyone will give an account. No one will escape from the day of the Lord. Every sinner will give an account on the last day. And no human is without sin. Otherwise, they wouldn't be far from God. So because this is coming for everyone, what should we do? And that's what I think Joel's focus is on. This is coming for everyone. And so we should grieve and lament, not necessarily first our sin, though that's true. Other parts of scripture tell us that. He's warning us to lament the judgment that we deserve that's coming. It should grieve us because it's bad. It can be tempting to think, maybe if you're not a Christian, that 
if Christians believe that God is in control and God is uh, working through tragedies and hardship, that then maybe Christians just don't care about people? Maybe that's what makes Christianity unappealing to you? Is that seems like a hard and cruel God? Or maybe for, for those of you who have trusted in Christ, maybe you're tempted to think, oh, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't feel bad about this. I shouldn't be sad when these things happen because I know that God will use this for his glory. It can be tempting to think that believing that God has power means that you should be emotionally removed from suffering and so it wouldn't affect you as much. But biblically, we just see that's not true. Jesus wept even when he knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the grave. He grieved sin and death because death is terrible. God's power over tragedies doesn't mean that we start celebrating tragedies. It doesn't mean that we should care less about when they happen. No, God's power is a comfort in the midst of those things that will be sad, that are good to grieve. So God's people here are told to put on sackcloth and to consecrate or to make a holy fast. Both of these are serving similar purposes. Wearing sackcloth is something you did when you're grieving because it was very uncomfortable. Uh, if you've seen a bag of potatoes, that's similar to what the kind of sackcloth is they're talking about. Very rough, very itchy, not something that's fun to wear like cotton. When you would wear sackcloth, you would wear sackcloth when a loved one had died and the purpose of it was to make you be uncomfortable, to remind you that you were supposed to be grieving right now. So in the moments when you forgot and sort of were able to be distracted by something else, laughed at something, laugh at something nice in the, in the midst of your week of grieving, you'd feel that itch and, or the poke and you'd remember, I'm uncomfortable because my, my life is supposed to be uncomfortable right now. I'm supposed to be sad over what I've lost. In the same way, the kind of fast that Joel is calling for uh, has a purpose to it. It's not a fast to the Lord like some people conceive of fasting, that somehow he's made happy when we make ourselves feel pain or hunger, as though just that ritual or action itself is pleasing to God. No, it's fasting with a purpose. Fasting to feel the discomfort of hunger. In this case, to be reminded to grieve. So one pastor says about this, he who fasts not only testifies openly that he is guilty, but he also reminds himself of his guilt. For we are not sufficiently touched by the sense of God's wrath. So these aids are useful, which help to excite and affect us. He then who fasts excites himself the more to repentance. That's the kind of fasting that's going on here fasting that is serving as a physical reminder to push them towards repentance and grieving over what's coming. And they are called to gather an assembly. There's something significant, something weighty when God's people gather together to grieve before him and ask him for mercy. These acts, they're being told to do them together as corporate acts of confession and repentance. That's something that's a, a strange idea to many of us today. Most of us rightly understand that we will give an account for our own sin before the Lord, and so our focus is often on our own personal sin. Th that's good and right. 
That's what, that's, you've learned that from the Bible. Uh, but there's also the category of corporate lament and confession, and it's important. It was particularly important then for Israel because they were God's chosen people, his representatives to the world. And in the same way, now we Christians are meant to represent God, for the, God to the world. So the way that we as Christians act, we as Christians should be invested in. We should care about what that looks like because we're all testifying together to the same Lord. We're all representing him on his behalf together. So when, so this is true about our individual sins among us. When I sin, you should be grieved at my sin. Because even if you feel like, oh, that doesn't really affect me. Oh, it does. Because my sin is saying something about your savior to the world. But also, corporately, as a body, what is our reputation? Do people think of us, Covenant Hope Church, as gracious and caring? Or are we known as only having time for ourselves? Are we known as people who love God's truth? Or are we known as people who only care about enough for ourselves but not enough to really tell anyone else? Do people look at us and think of us as holy or as hypocrites? Do we look humble or do we seem like a proud people? What is our reputation? Is it honoring God? If it doesn't, we should grieve and repent. Where it lies about God, that means that we are lying about God and sinning. Brother elders, notice that while the whole people are told to grieve and repent and call on God, the elders in particular are named in chapter 1, verse 14. So while it is corporate action, the elders should lead in repenting. My brothers, how often are we tempted to downplay our own sin as though our respectability as a leader is more important than leading in confessing sin? Let us not forsake that responsibility. And brothers and sisters, I'm grieved where often our behavior teaches you that mature Christians don't need to repent. No Christian has matured past the point of hating their sin and fighting against it. So pray for us. Pray for us elders that we would be quick to lead you in confession and repentance. Look back at chapter 2, verse 11. We've seen this massive army presented, this terrifying army, the cloud, the sun has gone away, the earth and heaven are shaking, the Lord stands at the front of his army, fearsome and ready for battle. He is the one who executes his own word. He is mighty. In other words, even though this army is fearsome and intimidating, they're not the ones to be worried about. It is the Lord standing at the front of them who is mighty and powerful. In this army, the general is the one who makes, happen, makes the orders happen. And what does this general say when he opens his mouth 
in front of this army about to invade. Yet even now return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend or tear your hearts and not your garments. This, this is why the Israelites should call on God. This is why we should call on God. Because even just before the last day, what is God looking for? People to come to him. Right before carrying out judgment, that is what he's asking for. People to return, that he might show mercy and grace. Joel adds his own encouragement to the Lord's encouragement in verse 13. He says, return to God, for he is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. This is exactly how God described himself to Moses in Exodus 32. When he revealed his glory to Moses, he said that he is defined. His character is his mercy and his grace, his commitment to love his people. That's not just things that God does. It's who he is. And why, what reason should they give for for him to relent, to show these kinds of mercy? Verse 17 says clearly, the same reason that Moses gave to the Lord when the Lord was preparing to destroy the Israelites at at Mount Sinai. Because of the name and reputation of the Lord. This flows from the same kind of thinking that is thinking that the worst part of a drought is that we can't worship God anymore. The center of Joel's world is God. And it's not people. So even the good or the sorrow of people is most significant where it's most closely connected to God. So though he sees coming judgment and he urges us to grieve it, lament it, the reason that we should give for why God should show mercy is because God is God. And to do otherwise would defame his name. And what would the sign be of God's relenting? Verse 14, he would provide a way for his people to worship him. He might leave behind a grain and a drink offering for them to worship him once again. Friends, that's exactly what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. We had no means to worship God properly. But through his son, we now approach his throne with confidence. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown. Because of what Christ has done, this same fearsome and powerful God that we see described at the front of his fearsome and terrible army is a God whose throne room we can confidently enter before. Isn't it amazing? through what Jesus has done, we have a way to worship this God. And not just a way that is acceptable and tolerable to him. A way that is pleasing to him. A way that he loves to see sinners come to him. Joel urged God's Old Testament people to repent and to call on God based off of his character in verse 17. But he says, if you see there in verse 14, he says, who knows? whether he will not turn and relent. Joel knew that the people were guilty, 
had been guilty many, many times before because, remember, Joel had read his Old Testament. He knew that the people were guilty of breaking God's covenant with him. He knew that God had no obligation to be merciful at this point. So he urges them to appeal to God's character because God is still the same God, but there's no certainty and there's no confidence that God will respond, respond with mercy because he's not bound to. God is God, and he will decide what he wants to do. This is very, very similar actually to what the king of Nineveh says when Jonah preaches that God is about to destroy the city. He says, let's repent, let's wear sackcloth and fast and mourn, and who knows? Maybe the God of the Israelites might be merciful to us. He doesn't have to be, but he might be. But here's the divine mystery. In God the Son becoming man, in dying on the cross, and rising again as the head of a new humanity, God bound himself. He obligated himself to be merciful to those who call on the name of his Son. He chose freely. No one made him do it. No one twisted God's arm into making that obligation, but he bound himself with his own word. He promised that not one of those that he would give to Christ will be lost. They will be preserved to the end, no matter what. Christians rejoice in that gift. That is a beautiful gift. Not only that we have hope of deliverance from the coming judgment, but we can have certainty of deliverance from the coming judgment. All we have to do is trust that Christ will stand between us and the judgment that is coming for us that we deserve. So, who knows whether God might relent? Oh, brothers and sisters, we know. We know that he will. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a great and powerful God. We praise you that you are worthy of our praise, that you are fearful and awesome in your judgment. And we praise you that, though that is terrifying to consider through your son, we don't have to have any fear of it. We praise you that you have promised that any who trust in him will be saved, will be delivered on the last day. We pray that you would help us to live with that kind of confidence, trusting in your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.